The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawkbox. We are coming to you live from Madrid where we are following the Spanish elections and of course CNBC HQ here in London. These are your headlines. Spain's general election leaves the country in limbo as no party wins a an, an outright victory, potentially setting the scene for months of coalition talks. The Partido Popular leader Alberto Fejo looks to seize the initiative. Our obligation now is to avoid a period of uncertainty. Spaniards today have put their trust in the popular party. Well, by the slimmest of margins, look at that, 0.01%. The Dow closed higher, but that made it the 10th straight day, which in turn makes the longest rally we've seen on the Dow since 2017. Uh, elsewhere, markets counting down to key meetings from the ECB and the Fed and the potential end of monetary tightening. Elsewhere, the US Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm are calling for greater oil output in a bid to curb recent rising crude prices. This is, she tells CNBC, there is a volatile environment in energy markets. And there's a lot of emotion in these markets. And so um, we have deep concern about trajectories of where things are headed. And wildfires on the Greek island of Rhodes trigger the biggest mass evacuation in the country's history, with Corfu now also telling tourists uh, to leave at least 17 districts, helping some escape by boat. If, if they can manage to form a government, we won't have to listen to that music anymore. Uh, good morning, everybody. This is absolutely fascinating. I'm afraid to say we are on a knife edge. Well, I'm afraid to say from a news point of view, it's great for the Spanish people. Not so great as well, because the Spanish Conservative People's Party, well, it narrowly won. And I don't know if you can say win, but it was certainly in the lead of the country's general election on Sunday, leading with 33% of the vote. But here's the quite exciting thing in terms of uh, political analysis. The Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez's Socialist Party, well, they outperformed expectations with 31.7% of the vote. The Conservatives won 136 seats. Here you go, look at this. I, I, I feel like, uh, I don't know, Mr Curtis or someone, or back in the day, Jon Snow or someone, I don't know. But this is the point. Look, absolute majority, you've got to get to 175 plus one. Uh, but they only got to 136 and failed to secure an outright majority. What does it mean? And there are many, many connotations uh, of what this means as well. So let's ask Charlotte, who uh, is still in Madrid. Charlotte, it seems to me on the outside this looked a lot closer than the PP thought it would be. And potentially, if you look at the various permutations, and I'm doing my best on this one because there are so many permutations, potentially leaves the socialists in a very good position. 
potentially, look, you were saying, oh, maybe, hopefully, we won't hear that music anymore. Well, it looks like the scenario is that we might have to hear that music again in a couple of months because it's looking tricky and we might have a rerun. But you're right, the result is better than expected for Pedro Sanchez. You know, he did a big political gamble and it looks like it's paid off. The socialists get more seats in this election than they had before at 122 seats, at 120. So certainly, he comes out in a strong position here. Uh, certainly, the Partido Popular, the central right party that was announced in the lead in the polls, did come as first party, but they didn't do as well as expected. They had set themselves a known, their own target of 156, 150 seats. They reached 136, so they didn't do as well as they thought they would. Uh, and even if they want to make a coalition with the far right party, which the far right party has actually lost many, many seats. They went from 52 seats to a 33, so they have lost many seats of far right, and that's one of the key lessons in this election as well. So the far right and the center right together do not reach the absolute majority. So now there will be a lot of talks, a lot of tractations, a lot of negotiations. Who, who might be able to do so? Certainly last night, Mr. Fejo, the leader of the center right party, said because he came as top party, it's his own right to try and form a government now. Nuestra obligación ahora. Our obligation now is to avoid a period of uncertainty. Spaniards today have put their trust in the Popular Party. They have also said that all the political parties across the parliament must have dialogue. And as the candidate of the party that has the most votes, I think that my duty is to open the dialogue, so I can lead this dialogue from the first minute and try to govern our country, accepting our victory in the electoral results. So suddenly what you can say is that the blue wave that we saw in the regional election where we were here in May, the, the centre-right winning lots of region here, taking them from the, from the Socialist Party, but that didn't translate into a blue, blue wave nationally. And Pedro Sanchez certainly stood his ground. And that was, in, in a sense, his message yesterday. He said he defeated the, the right and the far right and their messages. Those who vouch for machismo, the regression of rights and liberties have failed today. The backward block of PP and Vox has been defeated. Those who want to keep Spain advancing are many more than those who want to go backward with the Popular Party and Vox. Spain, Spaniards, Companions, we are many more. We will continue advancing and that's what will happen. Now, if Pedro Sanchez was to stay in power, he has to negotiate with lots of small regional and nationalist parties that have just five or six or few seats there, and if he wants to potentially reach a, a majority. And they had said before the election that if they want, if Pedro Sanchez wants uh, them to support him, then they will hike the price of that support. So indeed, we have some tough demand on the table. So the negotiations will be very, very tough there. So at the moment, it looks like no bloc is able to reach that magic number of 176 seats. Um, certainly one good lesson as well is that the turnout was actually quite reasonable at 70.4% despite of course this election being held in the middle of the summer holiday and the heat wave. A lot of possible vote, 2.5 million people asked for the possible vote and that helped boost the turnout there. So negotiations will start. Uh, the leaders will meet with their own parties today. The king will receive the leaders of the different party and then he will ask one of them Fejo saying because he's a top party should be his right to try and form a government first. So we'll have weeks and months of potential negotiations and if all this fails then we would have another election uh, in at least a couple of months so that will be all the, the bit of instability at the moment the tough negotiations ahead but certainly that gamble from Pedro Sanchez has paid off to a certain extent and the center-right hasn't done as well as expected
Donald, good morning. Tanvir here. And you know, like you said, the magic number is 170 seats. And let's see whether or not uh, Pedro Sanchez can negotiate and form a coalition to cross that mark. But what does all of this mean? Because you're talking about negotiations running into weeks and months mean for the economy and economic policy. And right now we know that the economy in Spain is on, good, on a good footing. Yes, as we were talking before, is uh, actually he came from a point of strength, Pedro Sanchez, into this election when it comes to the economy. As you were saying, the economy is growing well, 5.5% last year, 2.3% this year, inflation below 2%. So the economy is doing okay. And so the current government stays put at the moment while these negotiations carry on. So uh, we'll have to wait and see whether there is instability or not. But certainly from an economic point of view, there's no huge, huge difference between the, the two uh, major parties. Of course, there are different views on taxes, on fiscal consolidation, etc., etc. But given the dynamic in the Spanish economy at the moment, there will be a bit of benefit on the, that there on the market on what comes next. We'll have to wait, of course, uh, in the autumn and see how things unfold. But what's interesting for Pedro Sanchez, of course, that now looking at the negotiations that we'll have to do, he has to negotiate with parties that represent just between 1% and 2% of the overall vote. They're tiny, tiny parties that might ask for a very high price for their support. So that can cause a bit of... Um, controversy here because these small parties including some parties that are from the Basque country or from Catalonia are independentist parties they're called parties that call for independence so it's a tricky exercise here for Pedro Sanchez There's certainly a criticism that came from the opposition against him saying he's ready to pact with the devil if necessary to stay in power certainly has to negotiate some of these parties that have been voted back into the government by voters so that will be difficult conversation difficult negotiations here for Pedro Sanchez but certainly he himself comes from a position of strength because the Socialist Party themselves have actually upped the number of seats that they have. So certainly in terms of legitimacy in coming into these negotiations, it certainly has still a strong position here. Very interesting. Socialists getting more seats than they did in 2019. Charlotte, I haven't talked a lot with you uh, over the last couple of years because it hasn't seemed like it's a big issue or as big an issue about those two issues you just mentioned, Basque separatism and Catalonian independence as well. It was such a big story for uh, large parts of the last 15, 20 years as well. Is that story coming back? Is the same kind of appetite for independence for those two regions still there? Or is it actually just more about the need for more regional powers rather than separatism? Well, what's really interesting is that some of these parties that are calling for independence have actually lost seats. But they might be even more important in the negotiations to create a, a, a government here. So it's a very paradoxical situation here uh, in, in that position. But certainly what's interesting in the Basque country, for example, the list Bildu, which is the one that caused controversy in the regional election, one that some had on their list, some people that had been in the past um, committing, uh, including blood crimes as part of the group of ETA, the, that uh, terrorist group in the Basque country. So they had some of these people on their list uh, that caused some controversy at the time they are the they came ahead as a party ahead of the nationalist basque party so there are some internal dynamics in in the region but certainly you have the party of junts from catalonia that have 33 seats so they become extremely crucial potentially in forming a government they had said before the election they will not make a pact with pedro sanchez uh, then last night they said that the 
price for a potential alliance or for a potential pact would be very, very high indeed. What does that mean? Again, it's a pro-independence party. And Pedro Sanchez has said very clearly that putting uh, a pro-independence or referendum for independence is absolutely not on the table. So again, it's very difficult to see what kind of price these parties want and what Sanchez can actually offer to them. So at the moment, it, there's no tensions in the region that we've seen. Of course, in 2017, you remember that uh, referendum on independence in 2017 that caused a lot of tensions in the country. We're not at that point at all at the moment. Things have come down. And some say because of the handling of the situation of Pedro Sanchez, some say he's been actually too um, easy with some of these parties and he pardoned some prisoners, etc., etc. So we have to wait and see how he approaches this party. But certainly it can be an issue that can flare up quite easily. Things that have come down very much in the past few years, but it is certainly a point that can flare up again. Super duper coverage. And of course, we'll have plenty more Spanish coverage, not only from you in Madrid, but also uh, from some of your guests as well. Luis Miller is a sociologist from the Spanish National Research Council. Uh, we'll join Charlotte at 8.30 CET. And we'll be hearing from Becca Finance, um, Carlos Stylianopoulos at 9.30 CET. Uh, plus, our web coverage is up and firing on cnbc.com. In the meantime, the ever-fiery Michael O'Leary's Ryanair has reported numbers. What, what are the biggest standouts from you, Tanvir? Well, I'm just looking at the numbers coming in right now, uh, Steve. Uh, and so on the profitability side, after-tax profit has come in at 663 million euros. Uh, uh, of course, uh, this is uh, a very, very strong number above pre-pandemic levels, uh, but it, uh, it is... Uh, something that we need to monitor very closely. It's lowered its passenger growth forecast for 2023 because of uh, Boeing delivery delays. Uh, but the Irish airliner is saying that it added uh, some more deliveries from Boeing uh, of 737-820 jets. That may be delayed actually by from April 2024 to June 2024, potentially impacting uh, this winter and next spring performance. But overall, it now expects traffic in the year to March 2024 to grow by 9% to around 183 million compared to 185 million originally expected. I think what's important from Ryanair's perspective is also the guidance that comes out. Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to pick up those lines as of now, but uh, the expectation was that they would drop the word modest given their last quarterly performance year on year being stupendous on the back of that revenge demand, revenge travel demand that's coming. So we're monitoring that closely, uh, but for now it seems like they've delivered a strong set of earnings. All right, so if I just quick word on Julius Bell. There's two measures looking at this one. The price earnings, they're nothing special on that, 9.9 .9 times forward, but they knock the socks off of anyone in Europe with their price to book of 1.7 forward, best in class by a country mile. Um, and you look at assets under management, given all the Ferrari, the upheaval uh, we've seen in, uh, in Zurich over the last year. Uh, but they are saying, meanwhile, first half assets under management, 441 billion Swissy. That is a year-to-date increase of 4%, supported by new money of 7.1 billion Swissy. I want to move on pretty quickly. I'll tell you why, because we've got a lot coming up on this show, including the Dutch conglomerate Philips reporting a beat on second quarter revenue. Uh, on the other side of this break, we'll speak to Roy Jacobs. That is the first on CNBC interview. Plus later, uh, more than just a meme, Barbenheimer nabs the biggest box office debut of the year. 
as the double feature helps cinemas turn in their best weekend since Avengers Endgame back in April 2019. And diverging views, G20 energy ministers clashing over a bid to cut fossil fuel use, setting up a divisive COP28 summit uh, this year in Dubai. We're going to hear from the US Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, exclusively 7.30 Central European time. We'll be back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Philips has raised its outlook for 2023 after beating uh, on the revenue for the second quarter, coming at 4.5 billion euros. I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Roy Jacobs, CEO of Philips. Roy, really good you could join us today. Look, um, I'll be perfectly blunt about this. There are two Philipses out there. There's the one that includes the outlook for the investigation and litigation from the DOJ. And then there's the Philips that you want to concentrate on, which is the one going forward, the one that shareholders want to look beyond all the other stuff. Can we talk about the former before we do the latter? Where are we at with the investigation and litigation from the DOJ uh, and other prospective parties? Yeah, as you've seen, um, Phillips actually had a very strong start uh, of the year, first half. And uh, after a strong first quarter, we also had a very strong second quarter. And I'm happy to present, therefore, that we grew 9%. As you said, uh, that was on the execution of our plan where we strengthened our supply also improved our productivity and therefore uh, had stronger profit and cash that we generated. And that led to raise uh, the outlook for the full year. Whilst we acknowledge that uncertainty remains, and we also acknowledge that, of course, we will still have a lot to do, including working on our quality remediation, where we also made progress, and working through any uh, items such as litigation, but that we also expect will be only come to play later in 2024 and five. So, so, so do you have clarity on the kind of numbers we're talking about? Look, I'm, I'm, it's great. Your shares are up 55% from the lows from that 1161, which was, dare I say, about under a quarter of what your shares were trading at in April 2021. But you have had a big rally off the back. Are the investors now saying, OK, Roy, we have confidence that you're getting some clarity on the kind of numbers or, or can you just not give them that figure? I think what we see uh, in response to our performance is that people see that we are improving our trajectory and we are focusing on the controllables, which means that we focus actually on improving the core of our business, where you see that actually we are getting the revenues up, we are securing more supply and getting more reliability into the supply chain and also working our cost base down. So we're improving the fundamentals of our business and also satisfying the needs in the market because actually healthcare needs a lot of innovation as we speak. And that then also translates into better bottom line and better cash. At the same time, we are also realistic that we acknowledge that we are in a journey. We said we are on a path of sustainable value creation over multiple periods. And as part of that, we also need to work through the challenges that we have remaining, including the one of uh, the recall and its consequences.
Sorry, Ryan. Ryan, I'm going to try this one more time before Tanvir comes in. I want to talk about the future, but in terms of the kind of numbers we're talking about, the costs of the litigation, the costs of the investigation, have you clarified some kind of figure? What we did clarify is the number that we can clarify at this point in time. So we came out in the first quarter, as you know, with an economic loss provision of 575 million. That is still a number that stands. We are working through finalization of that. That's the only number that we currently can give because on the other parts, we don't have any clarity yet. And we said to the uh, market earlier that we expect to provide uh, clarity around that when we get it probably the earliest in 2024. Uh, and that's something that we will then, of course, bring to market uh, immediately. Right, Ryan, uh, sorry, uh, Roy, good morning. Tanvir, uh, joining in this conversation. You would have set aside or earmarked uh, some provisioning on account of the litigation costs that may unfold over the next 12 months. Yeah, so that's the number that we shared. So I think we, uh, as you know, we have earlier taken a provision for the remediation. Now on the remediation, we have made really great progress. We're at 99% of remediation uh, at the sleep site where we produce 99% and the vast majority of those are currently with patients and home care providers. We have only a small remaining part of ventilation left. So we're working through that. Then we had the economic loss provisioning that we actually provided for in the first quarter. So that now is also clarified. Now what remains is that indeed what further litigation could bring. But also, to be honest, there's no clarity at this point in time around that as we are still working through the process steps. And that's early days. So we will come back later to that. But most important is that we focus on what actually all the rest of the business is also focusing on and service our patients, but also servicing our consumers, where we're happy to see, for example, that actually personal health, the consumer business came back into growth territory this year. And as we have seen a subdued consumer demand, this was a very important step also for the personal health business to come back into positive territory. And so do you hope uh, that things will pick up for the personal health business, which has been struggling? I think some of your other segments have been doing well, uh, but it's really uh, the personal health business that's uh, taken a headset back. Yeah, I think it was in line with the expectation also, of course, with the global economy was that consumers really have taken uh, a step uh, back based upon the strong inflation they have to deal with. So consumer spending was a bit depressed, but actually we have seen sellout starting to really increase and on the back of that now we also saw that we had a strong first step in the right direction getting into three percent growth in personal health and also now if you look to the second half of the year we actually believe we can build on that positive momentum that we see also coming back in the consumer businesses and as you rightly said we saw that in the health care businesses coming back earlier we had a very strong dnt diagnosis and treatment business, a very strong connected care business. So the health sector and segment was coming back to growth earlier. We also see that continuing in the second half. That also gives us the confidence to raise our guidance for the full year, whilst acknowledging that there are still uncertainties as the context that we operate in, and you of course report on every day, is still a very volatile one with the macroeconomic uh, uh, drivers that are still in movement, like, such as inflation or interest rates. Yeah, right. And they are huge pressures on your margins. Well, I get that. But look, is the structural story developing as Franz thought it would, as you thought it would as well? Or is it just taking longer? Because if I can look, look beyond the oscillation of pressures on margins, of supply chains, of interest rates as well, we've got a long-term thematic story here, triage that can be done in the home as well. I've bought into the Kool-Aid. I just want to see the results. Are you seeing those results, Roy? 
Yeah, I think we are proving that the results are coming in. And actually, to be honest, they're coming in even a bit faster than we expected because we thought that this year would be more back-end loaded. Now, we have been able to secure more of supply and convert more orders and actually build more momentum in the first half. And that actually is very encouraging. And it is the proof that the actions that we're taking, which are tough measures, are really yielding effect. As you know, we, of course, we're putting a lot of priority on patient safety and quality. We're investing a lot in supply chain improvements, but also we are taking severe measures on the productivity front. We are reducing our um, uh, labor force with a serious uh, number. Now, that's a lot of change we are working through. But as the numbers show, this is really delivering the results. We had a strong productivity contribution that is kind of offsetting the inflation that we have. We have pricing contribution now also coming in, and we expect more of that in the second uh, half. So we see that the robustness of our uh, earnings are really strengthening. Um, Roy, uh, appreciate uh, all your uh, your answers to our questions. I know we had a bit of a focus on the uh, looking backwards stuff, but I'm also very excited about the opportunities that you just outlined for the company going forward. So it won't be long before we can start just talking about that, regardless of the other stuff. That's what the fingers are crossed for anyway. Roy, nice to see you, sir. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Roy Jacobs, the CEO over at Philips. Well, Tanvir, when does 0.001 equal a record? Well, the answer was on Friday, I think. <laughs> it did. In, in fact, it was the longest winning streak, uh, Steve, uh, for the market, for the Dow Jones, uh, since 2017. So let's just walk you through the numbers. That was a closing figure, 35,227 for the Dow Jones, the S&P 500 at 4536, and the NASDAQ closed shy of or actually around the 14,000 mark. Now, what you need to be mindful of is uh, the fact that we have seen solid, solid gains uh, coming in for the Dow Jones on the back of the fact that it's less skewed towards technology stocks and there's less dominance of technology stocks on that index. So the divergence is playing out. The S&P 500, let's just focus on that one for a bit because 25% of that index is really coming in from uh, the technology space. And just Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and NVIDIA, Tesla, Alphabet, Meta, that's a long list, constitute... Uh, 11 trillion dollars uh, for uh, for the market which essentially is 50 percent of the u.s economy but very quickly uh, moving on uh, to the two stories that really made headlines last week uh, nvidia and microsoft those earnings are on watch uh, in this week's trade in the uh, year uh, actually the week-to-date performance of nvidia shows that the market is getting really really worried about uh, the outlook for this ai chip maker uh, because a large part of their rally so far into this year was predicated on the ai dominance that's the case with microsoft as well which closed down one percent lower so tech's feeling a bit nervous getting into the earnings season and this week of course we were watching out for these two numbers in specific i do want to mark treasuries very closely for our viewers we are looking at pretty much the same picture 100 basis points uh, so steepening of the yield curve continues and we are seeing that concern on on what happens with with recession risks for the bond market so the bond markets are flashing red and the equity markets are absolutely calm of course having said that you are worried about earnings and whether or not that earnings support can continue to make the markets go higher from here. Dollar crosses and it's going to be an important, important week for Forex majors this week because we have the BOJ reporting, we have the ECB coming out with its policy decision and of course the Fed. So ECB and Fed, 25 basis points is what is expected for the BOJ and you have to mark what's happened with the dollar yen. It lost about 2% last week as the market repriced the expectations that the Bank of Japan would indeed not tweak the yield curve control this time. 
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.